Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends, and welcome to our Resolute Hope podcast. Again, this is John Russin, and I'm here with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. My friend, how are things going over there in Louisiana? We're uh, tapping into the light of uh, God in the midst of a very dark world, <laughs> day by day. I guess that's true for all of us. Uh, and for our listeners, I want to take just a few moments today and give a very brief, a thumbnail summary of what we've been talking about just for the past few weeks. We're in week three podcasts of a series on law and grace. And in the first week, we talked about the principle of law in Genesis 3, the underlying focus on right and wrong that functions in all of us, the fruit of eating that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then last time we talked about uh, expanding that conversation to consider the impacts of eating of that tree, right and wrong, on the first man, on the first woman, and what we called at that time, death in Adam. So please, uh, go back and check those podcasts out. So now, Frank, as we begin today, we're going to pick up at that point. And some folks might wonder immediately why we did not begin our discussion of law and grace in what might be the most logical place, Exodus 20, with the Ten Commandments. We started in Genesis. Why is it so important, Frank, to get an understanding of right and wrong and death in Adam? Why is that the foundation that we've chosen? Well, that's a really big point because, you know, in Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments. And I think a lot of people out there mistakenly believe that this is what God wants for his people, to follow Ten Commandments. And it's very easy, I think, to stumble into that kind of thinking when you, when you understand that Moses came down off that mountain with his face shining like the sun. And so people look at that and say, boy, the law is a glorious thing. And what they fail to understand is that law did not begin on that mountain called Sinai. Law began in the Garden of Eden when man ate from that tree of right and wrong that he was never supposed to eat from. God told them, don't eat from that tree. He did, when you ponder that, John, we weren't even supposed to know right and wrong, let alone be trying to do right and not do wrong. So when God gave the law on that mountain in Sinai, he wasn't giving us what we were supposed to be doing in his original intended economy for us. He was showing us what we had chosen back in the Garden of Eden. In essence, he was almost saying to the children of Israel, look, that was a really bad choice. Let me show you how bad that choice 
really was. You really want to try to be like me? You really want to live under the economy of doing right and not doing wrong? Performing instead of receiving? Let me show you what that meant. Here's my big 10. Have at it. And I think in essence, what he was doing was helping us understand how bad that choice in Adam really was, because none of us can keep those Ten Commandments. They are not the means to life. They are actually death. Now, we might be able to do the first nine pretty good. You know, we don't, we don't kill people. We honor our mother and father. We, we uh, try to uh, maintain married purity. Uh, but the Tenth Commandment kills all of us. Because basically the tenth one is saying, don't even want to do the first nine. And that's the one that none of us can escape from. My friend, that does not sound like good news at all. <laughs> and I guess before we can really understand the good news of Jesus, we've got to understand the bad news. Not the bad news about sin, because that's just a symptom. The really bad news uh, comes from Adam. And I want to begin this session now by launching from Romans chapter five, and Apostle Paul makes two interesting statements. In 5.12, he says, death passed on to, or it came through to all men. Now that doesn't sound like a very bad thing, Frank, not in my opinion. It's kind of like bad breath. We all have it. Everybody has to deal with it. So it doesn't quite capture the impact of death in my mind but he takes uh, a few verses later in Romans 5, 17, and he really nails it. He says, death reigned as a king with absolute power over all men. That's a much more grievous picture for me. But we've got to clarify here what he's talking about when he says death. It's not necessarily only the physical death that Adam brought to us. There was a change in heart, a change in attitude, a change in approach, wasn't there, Frank? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really important issue to dive into. A lot of people just think, uh-oh, physical death entered the arena of man. No, it, it's far worse than that. Uh, spiritual death entered into the arena of man. Spiritual death, which is, of course, if you remain in that state through not exercising faith in Jesus, it will be ultimately eternal death, which is spiritual death, which is separation from God. And so when you start to think like that, when we're separated from God, i.e. spiritual death, we're separated from all that God is. So we got separated from goodness. We got separated from righteousness. We got separated from significance that we get in God. We got separated from mercy. Uh, we got separated from love. And so what happens is we're all actually living in death. Not just that death is going to come upon us one day when we're 80 years old, but we're living in death. We're living in unkindness. We're living in unlove. We're living in unrighteousness. This is our experience. This is what we possess. And since there's a universal law that we can only give what we have, we will be giving death. To others. We are, in essence, ministers of death. So we give death to each other in unlove, unkindness, unrighteousness. And relationally, 
it becomes a, a very, very harsh world because we cannot give the life and the love and the mercy and the kindness that we really want to. We may give those things, but ultimately they come with a hook. And that hook is, I'm doing those things to get life out of you. And then ultimately we all end up as users and abusers. As uh, Larry Crabb wants to find it, a bunch of ticks with no dog. <laughs> I still remember that phrase. And uh, it is true then and it rings so true even today. So my friend, what we're saying then is that this death, this fundamental separation from God, this drive to, to do things our way, like the old 1960s Frank Sinatra song, I did it my mm. way, to do our own thing. This is the aspect of death that Adam passed to us. And you just spent a few moments outlining just a few of the fruits of that death, the way we treat each other. Paul really nails this in Galatians chapter five. He calls it the flesh. Mm. And he makes an interesting statement. He says, it's desires. The flesh's desires are always totally and completely opposite of this, what the spirit of God wants to do in us. So even if we suck it up and try to do what's right in our own strength, it still is flesh and it is contrary to what God wants to accomplish, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would put it this way. It's, it's not only the wrong method, and that means, of course, that we're no longer receiving life from God and then giving life from God. That our method now is that we're going to try to generate life. And so not only is it the wrong method, but it also has at its source the wrong motive. Uh, instead of being the complete and total motive of love, now it's the motive of manipulation because I'm trying to get life out of you instead of ministering life to you. And so the way I, I usually illustrate this with, with a couple is I'll say, you know, what, what do you think about a guy that brings his wife flowers? Boy, everybody goes, what a great guy. There's a lot of women that go, my husband never brings me flowers, but I wish I had him for a husband. But God looks at it differently. It's not just what did you do, but why did you do it? So he looks at that guy and he says, why did you bring the flowers? And the guy might say, well, because I love her. And God would say, yeah, that's a great answer. And that's true. It's about 70% of your motive. But there's other motive in there, son. Why else did you do it? And if we're honest, we say, well, I want her to love me back. Oh, so you're manipulating her. Uh, well, you know, uh, we haven't had intimate relations for a week or so. Oh, so you're trying to get her into bed. And see, this is kind of how it happens. And we could do it to the girl. You know, she cooks his favorite meal and everybody goes, what a great girl. And then God comes along and says, why did you do that? And she says, well, I, I want him to love me, or I dented the car, or I bought a new dress that blew the budget. <laughs> and so, you know, it really becomes a question of not only the method, but the motive behind what we're doing. And it's really, we're trying to get life out of people instead of give life to them. And I always have told people, you know, because Paul really doesn't define the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, spell it backwards. And cross off the H. 
it's really an issue that's all about me. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? And how am I doing it in order to try to get life from other than God? And it ultimately is, is the ministry of death. Paul in Galatians uses an interesting word. He says, desires. The flesh mm. desires or lusts in the King James Version. Its desires are against the spirit and the spirit's desires. So that really emphasizes your focus on motive. Not necessarily what you do. It's also why you do it. Now, a little bit of grammatical housekeeping. You mentioned that Paul never defines the flesh. And you're right. It can be used, that word, that's sarks. It can be used to mean a physical body. But in this reference, we're, we're using it not to reference a body. And I'd like to throw out, Frank, my definition of flesh that I've cobbled together, together over decades. And uh, let me know what you think. This is John's definition of flesh, using all of my resources and all of my abilities to function independently of God, capitalizing on my strengths, minimizing my weaknesses in an effort to control my environment, to meet my legitimate needs in a selfish and illegitimate way and to arrange my world so that I always feel good about myself. I always feel safe and I always feel right. How close did I get, bro? <laughs> That's a great definition. Uh, it's, it's, I've used very much the same definition. Uh, you know, the thing about the flesh when you glean from scripture, it's always about control uh, because it's always about me and it's about me getting my needs met. And if I'm going to have to do that, I'm going to have to control things. And like you said, I'll capitalize on my strengths and I'll minimize my weaknesses. And largely it's to try to get life out of you. And you know, John, your definition really ties well into Romans one, which outlines man's great fall from God and the bottom line he sends there is that men end up worshiping the creature instead of the creator. And that creature would be, you know, a lot of people think, oh, that's idolatry and the dog god of Egypt and the, the mouse god of India or whatever. And no, 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 no. It's people. I end up worshiping myself. I'm the supreme being. It's all about me. And I end up worshiping all other creatures, i.e. men, women, to try to get needs out of them. And so your definition really ties in well with other passages of scripture. And it matches so closely my walk, your walk, <laughs> and all the walks of, I, of all believers that we've seen over decades of working and ministering and counseling together. Uh, one of the things I want to bring up today, my friend, is a really unfortunate translation of that word, sarks. Uh, I don't want to pick on this specific version. This is the NIV, but they did choose to translate sarks in Romans 7 and 8, not as flesh, but as sinful nature. Now, they've since reissued versions and they've changed that. But that confusion right there has been particularly troublesome to a lot of people. We both have seen that because it leads people to conclude that a Christian has two natures, a good nature and a bad nature. And to me, my friend, this is not bad news. This is horrible news 
Because if it's true, then my identity as a child of God includes a piece of my sinful nature, that God didn't do his job fully to make me new, and I have no choice but to sin. I can't even help it because it's part of who I am. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's, that's a really, really important issue that smacks at the very heart of the gospel. You know, when Paul in Romans 6, as we looked at a few weeks ago, and I know we'll look at repeatedly on this podcast, because it is the gospel. It, it said, he says, do you not know? In other words, we ought to know that we died with Christ. And there are three main issues that spring from our being crucified with Christ. One is our old nature died. We don't have an old nature anymore. And I think what happens is in the words of my old friend, Bill Gillum, the flesh masquerades as our old nature. It almost makes us think the old nature is still there, but it's not because in Romans six, it says our old man died. You know, Ezekiel 36 puts it this way. He'll take away that old stony heart and give you a brand new heart. So our old nature died. Number two, when we died, we died to the power of sin. And three, we died to the law so that we could be married to Jesus. And I think the mistake so many people make, and the NIV really did not help the issue, is that they think they still have an old nature. Because when they sin, they think, well, that's me. I did it, so I still must be bad. And that is totally contrary to the truth of the New Testament. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul said, it was not me, but it was sin dwelling in my flesh. It was not me. So it's kind of like a splinter. A splinter may be in your body, but it is not your body. And it causes all kinds of trouble. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us. It's not you. You're brand new. You're right. You're good. You're perfect. You chose to do a really stupid thing. That's your flesh working there. But it's not you. And that is such a great distinction for you to call attention to. For all of the people who are listening to this podcast, John, we are new. We can act old but it doesn't make us old. It means we were being pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it certainly does. And you know, that's really great news, Frank, because when Jesus promised us what I, what I call the big five, joy, rest, abundant life, peace, and truth that sets us free, when he promises that, I'd like to take him as his, at his word. Hmm. But if I still have an old sinful nature, those promises are hollow either he was lying or he was baiting and switching or maybe one day they'll be true for me in heaven or maybe they're true only for really mature super spiritual folks like pastors like pastor frank but i take great comfort in the fact that this is true today that mm -hmm. as you said i may choose to behave as if i am not new but the truth is that i am new I have the mind of Christ, Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. That means I can think what Jesus thinks. I can choose as Jesus would choose. I tell you, man, that is freeing beyond anything I could imagine. 
Oh, because it's reality. You know, the one thing, other addition we could make to what you just said, John, is the whole idea of positional truth. And there's so many people that teach that. Oh, this is true positionally. In other words, this is how God sees it, but we all know that's really not how it is. Well, that means God plays games with himself, and that's not the God of the New Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find the word positional truth. You just find truth. So the truth is, I died. The truth is, I was resurrected. The truth is, I am brand new. The truth is, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And when I choose to act like it, I'm really playing the part of hypocrisy because I'm acting like somebody I'm not. And the reality is, and this is so important, behavior does not term determine identity. I get a lot of people think that they're a sinner because they're, they sin. Well, by that reality, by that statement, you can bark and you'd be a dog. So no, 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 no. Behavior doesn't determine identity. Birth determines identity. And that coincides with the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. You were born in Adam. That's why you're in all this trouble. That's why you live in death. That's why you give death to others. But you can be born again in Christ, born from above, become brand new, and now become a minister of life instead of a minister of death. And boy, like you said, that just knocks your socks off. As we say in Maine, that's wicked good news, brother. <laughs> I want to get back to this topic of the flesh and spend the next few minutes talking about the different types of flesh that we might see. Uh, some folks have really positive flesh, chronic high achievers. Some have grimy worm flesh, very negative. Uh, we see all different variations on those themes. Frank, from your experience as a pastor all these years, how does flesh develop in us and what are some key factors? Well, you know, we're, the first thing we have to realize, as you brought up earlier in this podcast, is being born in Adam. So that means you're born dead. So that means your number one thing on this planet is to try to find life. And you're born in an economy of achieving, happened in the book of Genesis, instead of the economy of receiving the way we were all designed to do. And so it starts even when a little baby is brought home. You know, that little baby cries. What does mama do? Comes and picks them up. What do they learn? I can cry and get my needs met. The sad thing, I've got 40, 50, 60 year olds that are still using that method to manipulate their environment and get their needs met. When they cry, people feel sorry for them and jump to meet their needs. Uh, the baby can throw tantrums. And boy, if mama rewards that behavior, they'll be throwing tantrums on Saturdays at Walmart. You can see those kids. What if they spank for the tantrum? Uh-oh, I can cry, but I can't throw tantrums. This is how it works. A little kid, life is all about them. And they interpret all of life about them. And as they do their behavior and learn whether it works or not, they employ those tools in their toolboxes, if you will. The little child might bring home straight A's. Mom and dad jump through the ceiling. What's that kid learn? Boy, I can perform and get my needs met. Yeah, that and was that was that was me <laughs> to a T, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, a PhD, isn't it, John? 
yes, yes. Uh, if there were a higher degree, I think in my flesh, I would have aspired to it. <laughs> but then you get the kids who bust their backsides but only pull off C's. What happens to them? Oh, I can never do good enough. And so, you know, I like to use the analogy of batteries. Uh, we get people that are kind of energizer bunnies. And then we've got other people that are store brand batteries. And if you put biblical terms to it, uh, the, the ever ready energizer bunnies, those were the scribes and Pharisees. The store brand battery people, well, that was your sinners, tax collectors, and harlots. You know, the interesting thing, though, John, is who followed Jesus, those who knew they had a need. Who had the problem with Jesus, sought to get him out of the way, didn't like what he was saying. Uh, the people that were having their really good batteries undermined, the people who had a problem but did not know they had a problem. And so that's kind of, I think, how it works. Uh, we've got to reach a point in our life where we realize that our batteries aren't securing for us what we would like to have them secure. They really can't generate life on a consistent basis that would satisfy the deepest recesses of our spirit. That can only be done by the spirit of God. I think it was Augustine that said, the human spirit created by God will never rest until it rests in God. And no amount of flesh can ever counterfeit the life of the spirit. Man, you talk about a toolbox and a tool to put in your toolbox. What you just said really nails it, my friend, because it gives me, it gives you, it gives every one of our listeners an important litmus test how do I approach my world? How do I approach my problems when things don't go as I want them to do? And that's common every day for me. How do I, how do I react? Do I manipulate and steer and try to get things done the way I think they should get done by engaging my flesh? Or do I set my mind on God? You know, Paul tells us, uh, in two places in scripture, very clearly, Colossians 3, set our minds on things above. Philippians 4, focus on what's good, lovely, true, right, excellent, worthy of praise. Set your mind on these things and then trust the Holy Spirit in you to speak how you should respond. Because remember, Jesus promised, my sheep hear my voice. And when you appeal to your father, even if you don't know exactly what your flesh is or what the circumstances are, father, help. I don't mm. know how to respond. I trust you. I invite you into this mess. Father, mm. express your life through me right now. I've done that so many times over the years in my own life, and uh, he has shown up every single time. Mm. You know, John, listening to you, I, I often use this illustration to communicate in a practical way what you're saying. You know, we kind of grow up independent of God, tackling life, as you said earlier, doing it my way. And that would be if you picture a beautiful, lush virgin meadow and you walk across it, there'll be footsteps. If you walk across that same path twice a day, there'll be a path. If you do it a hundred times a day for 20 years, there'll be a rut. And that's kind of what we did. We carved ruts 
for how to live in our, in our brain, if you will. There might be a, a rut of control, a, a rut of manipulation, a rut of anger, a rut of, of putting forth the right answer to make everybody else wrong, a, a rut of uh, where I just capitulate to people in order to, and we're doing all of those things to get our needs met. But now on the opposite side is a, a wholly other brand new virgin meadow. And that's walking by the spirit where we put our hand in his. And instead of walking down all of those other paths that we learned how to function independent of God, we're going to put our hand in the Holy Spirit, inquire of him how to live and let him lead us to carve a brand new path of faith. And, and that's what this is all about. Uh, learning to live by faith in him who knows how to do life. And, and that's, that's a, just a wonderful, wonderful path to begin to carve. Well, I've been walking with the Savior now for, my goodness, more decades than I care to remember. And I'm still learning to do life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we as we all are. And there's no way, my dear brother, that we can hope to nail this topic down in just a single podcast. So I think I want to leave our listeners now with a prayer and a promise. My prayer for you is that you will boldly approach your Father in heaven and ask him to search you, to show you your heart, your motives, your desires. And then you would choose to lay those before him and begin to trust him as you walk in faith and life and obedience. That's the prayer. The promise is that when you join us next time on this podcast, we're going to get into the weeds a little more by giving you some very practical perspectives on, okay, we got flesh, so what? How do we manage our mind? How do we manage our emotions? How do we manage our will? I mean, the emotions are screaming sometimes. And then here's the hardest part. How do we manage life when you're surrounded by people who have flesh too? And their (laughs) flesh is irritating to you. (laughs) And you just want to erase them. You know, what, you know, scripture addresses that. And it gives us some very clear perspectives on, on what Christ's life looks like when you're surrounded by people whose flesh just grates you like a cheese grater. And so that's the promise for next week that uh, we hope our listeners will join us again. And uh, until that time, my friend, any last words before we sign off? Wow, I'm contemplating next time together. Am I going to have to share personal testimony? (laughs) Well, has it come to this? Uh, I don't want to be, I have been a very, good minister of death to a lot of people and i want to be a minister of life now so this will be a great topic and we'll be uh, hopefully very honest and very vulnerable because i think that'll help other people who want to minister life as well so Indeed. it'll be a great time whatever we have learned we truly have learned in the trenches my brother <laughs> making i think every mistake conceivable <laughs> and so until next time dear listeners uh thanks for joining us Uh, Join us again next time for our Our Resolute Hope podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram under Our Resolute Hope and on our website, OurResoluteHope.com. And until next time, walk close. 
Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.